Passionate DJ Podcast, where it's all about becoming a better DJ through passion and purpose. And now, your host, David Michael. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Passion DJ Podcast. I'm your host, David Michael, and I'm sitting here with an awesome team who helped get everything set up today while I couldn't be here. Tripp and Tony, thank you guys so much for uh, setting up while I was handling business and not feeling too well and, and everything. I came in and, and everything was ready to go, so I really appreciate that, and you guys are uh, awesome. <laughs> I didn't do anything. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here with a scratchy throat. I'm going to get through this the best I can. I suspect I'm not the only one. No, but I'm just getting over it myself. So, <laughs> But the uh, show must go on. Right? And to all of my radio voice fans, all two of you. Um, <laughs> Hi, Stacy. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Gina. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so... So we got a bit of industry news today. You guys hear about this SFX thing? I don't got, know who hasn't heard about it. Yeah, yeah, they filed for Chapter Eleven bankruptcy on Monday, February first. The media giant SFX Entertainment declared bankruptcy. The company and its frontman Robert Sillerman are well known for being giants in the so-called EDM industry, and the company owns a string of smaller companies in the dance music space. So, all your large festivals like Tomorrowland, Mysteryland, Electric Zoo, Life in Colors, these are all. Uh, subsidiaries, or at least they are under subsidiary companies, which are under SFX. Um, you guys know much about Robert Sillerman? What's your impression of him? Um, I can't say I really do. Uh, I don't know much about him. I've seen his picture, and I, you know, I know the face to put to the name, and I know that he doesn't know anything about EDM. Right, self-admitted. That, that's but. what I was going to say. Is that I mean, what little bit I do know is limited to. Yeah, I could pick him out of a lineup, and um, he notoriously pretty much said, I don't know anything about EDM, but, you yeah. know, I'm paraphrasing, but I know how to make money, you know, that sort of <laughs> right. thing. And and that's all fine and good, but um, as far as my opinion of him, uh, him as a person, I don't I don't know. Uh, the business practices that have probably led to this, I've, I've got other opinions, but... Well, good, I'll be asking you about that. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to... <laughs> to see what your guys' perspective is on this. But the, the company is also known for having acquired Beatport. And it was about this time in 2013. And the first thing that I saw on my news feed on Monday was Beatport's going under and, and SFX is exploding and all this stuff. And it was a lot of confusion surrounding it. And so, uh, yeah, it definitely caused panic amongst the, amongst the DJ community. But uh, it seems like so far what I'm hearing is that Beatport is uh, continuing business as usual. Supposedly, all the festivals are uh, business as usual as well, but I've heard some mixed results on that one from you know coming from spokespeople of those particular festivals. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't one of the Tomorrow Worlds or Tomorrowland one of those two? Wasn't that the one that like had the huge like flood and camping uh, mishap? Tomorrow and, World. What, so where was that? Georgia. 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 Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I would have assumed that that one took enough of a financial hit. That would be hard to recover recover from, wouldn't it? You'd think so. Well, I, part of the issue here is that as soon as everybody saw that SFX was filing for bankruptcy, I think everybody assumed that that was Chapter 7. 
mm. uh, which is kind of like uh, we're liquidating, right. we're going under, you know, it's like a Hail Mary pass. And Chapter 11 is a little different. It primarily applies to commercial enterprises that wish to continue business operations while repaying creditors through a court-approved reorganization plan. The debtor has a number of options under Chapter 11 for returning the business to profitability. So they can reduce debts by repaying a portion of them while discharging others. Uh, they can discharge burdensome contracts and leases and so on. Um, so upon completion of the plan, the debtor usually has undergone a period of consolidation and emerges with a reduced debt load and a reorganized, more profitable business. So it sounds like they're trying to keep going. And in fact, I think they did some kind of deal where they've got $115 million in financing to keep like all the festivals going and that sort of thing. Oh, okay. I've got a blurb on that. I don't want to read all of it, but it says that uh, SFX Entertainment was created four years ago to capitalize on the popularity of dance music. This comes from the New York Times. Uh, dance music festivals declared bankruptcy on Monday after a troubled year in which the company's founder abandoned a takeover bid and its stock plunged by more than 95%. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, the bankruptcy re- reorg will take the company private, eliminating more than $300 million in debt from its balance sheets and install a new uh, CEO to replace Robert Sillerman. According to an announcement, the company's many festivals around the world, including Electric Zoo, Tomorrowland, Mysteryland, Stereosonic, etc., will go on as planned, and other businesses like its digital music store, Beatport, will remain operational. This reorganization raises questions about the future of the company, including whether pieces of it will be bought by rivals in the concert and live entertainment businesses. But despite SFX's problems, the dance music world has largely remained strong. I want to ask you guys about that, too, so... Uh, Festivals like Coachella, which involve many dance acts as headliners, are still popular, and by one estimate, the global market for dance music, including recordings, live performances, endorsements, etc., is worth $6.9 billion a year. Do you guys think the EDM, quote-unquote, industry is worth $6.9 billion a year? Yeah. When you're paying a headliner $100,000 to a million dollars to play a festival, yeah. (laughs) I wonder where that number comes from. Like, how do you calculate So are we talking just U.S., or are we talking global? I mean... And the reason I ask that is because, sure, the EDM quote-unquote explosion has been relatively new for us. I mean, what are we talking, 2009, 2010, when dubstep you know, brought all of this up to the forefront? But EDM, in almost every form, has been you know, a, more of a primary yeah. type of music in, in other parts of the world. They, they listen to EDM like Americans listen to pop music. So I, I feel like if it's a global number, then that's super easy to do. Uh, it says uh, it's, this is the estimate for the global market for dance music. So this includes recordings, live performances, endorsements, and other deals. So who, who knows what, I mean, it sounds like it's a pretty umbrella kind of number, but yeah, uh, it, it kind of makes you wonder if, like, is EDM too big to fail or is it is it so big that it's definitely going to topple over or, or does this have nothing to do with EDM as an industry or is this just mismanagement by uh, Mr. Sillerman and his company or is this uh, a sign of where the market's going? And I, I really don't know which it is, to be honest. If I had to take a stab in the dark... I would say that it's most likely, in the short run, I would say it's it's an indicator of mismanagement. And, That's where and I the lean reason, to. The reason I'm going with that is because even if SFX did not purchase Beatport and 
all of the festivals and, and turn it into what it is. I mean, that that's kind of the direction everything was going in anyway. They just really catapulted it yeah. to that to that in, in the States. It doesn't seem like popularity is dying down. Right, so no. Far. Just because SFX went, you know, it, it is having trouble, it doesn't make people like EDM any less. It sounds like Robert Sillerman got too big for his britches and just took on a little too much, and now this is a... This is uh, uh, damage control to keep the machine going. Could be. Um, also could be any number of excesses or um, missteps or even just, you know, people taking advantage of uh, leaks in the system. You know, to Tony's earlier point, when you're paying headliners anywhere from six figures to even some seven figures to play a festival and then you add or you multiply that by X number of headliners and you're dealing with that much money, then that revenue needs to come from somewhere. Right. And that comes in the form of ticket sales and uh, advertising and all of that stuff. And if we don't think that there's people taking advantage of the system somewhere in along the way, you know, I've worked a corporate job for several years and, you know, that's one of the things that some industries are really good at is finding, you know, profit leaks and, and plugging them up. I don't have as much experience in the dance music world as far as the corporate side of it is concerned, but who knows where those leaks are or the nefarious people that are trying right. to you know, take advantage of a system. Well, Beatport jumped on the train really quick because I think they saw people panicking when they oh, saw yeah. that SFX, <laughs> the parent company, you know, was going under. Everybody said, oh, Beatport's gone. What about my music and all that stuff? So, right. I mean, on Monday, the day of the announcement, um, this popped up on Beatport News where they uh, they were saying, we're not going anywhere, we're still here, it's business as usual, actually we're expanding, please don't freak out. Uh, you know, one paragraph here I have is, all Beatport, all Beatport users, customers, and partners should rest assured knowing that this action will have no impact on our ability to continue offering the most complete electronic music experience available. Around here it's a business as usual. So apparently Beatport's not going anywhere, don't freak out. Right, right. <laughs> Um, I think it was djworks.com mentioned that maybe uh, uh, Beatport might have different owners in the future or something like right. that, but it doesn't seem that they're going anywhere. Yeah. So did you have some news about Ram Records and uh, what, what's going on oh, yeah. there I with mean, the drum and bass a, label? There's a lot of activity up in the, up in the upper echelons <laughs> of the music industry yeah. right now. Just to touch on it, because I think we'll probably expand on this topic later on in a future episode as we learn more about it. But it seems BMG has acquired Ram Records, which is a drum and bass label owned by Andy C. That's crazy to me. Like, right, have, right. Are you guys familiar with another, has there ever been like a dance label like that that's been acquired by like a BMG that's like for drum and bass or kind of a, I don't want to say niche audience, but something that's genre specific like that? right. Um, That's the first time I've heard of that it, I but know it might of, happen all the time. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't follow that stuff <clears throat> that closely. But this one was big enough that it, it it caught everybody's attention. It's all I've read about today, next to the SFX stuff. <laughs> like, so, so we don't know numbers or anything like that. Not yet. that I not not yet, but uh, the 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 response has been mostly mixed. You got a bunch of hardcore drum and bass guys that are all like, ah, this is selling out, this is bullshit, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. And then you've got, yeah, and then you've got Andy C's hardcore supporters and, and people who genuinely love and want 
drum and bass to progress uh, from the second room (laughs) 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 with a substandard uh, sound system and, you know, really see it become a success. And Ram Records, Hospital Records, those are a couple of the labels that have really done that. And some people, maybe rightfully so, have accused them of, you know, really watering down the genre and Mm. making it more mainstream. So BMG coming by and picking this up really isn't that big of a surprise when you look at their later catalog. But at the same time, it's still drum and bass. I mean, it's not like it's hip hop. It's not like it's, you know, Hardwell or Tiesto, you know, that type of EDM that has billions of followers or whatever. Well, I was going to say too, like I, I mean, I guess the initial concern, right, when you hear something like that is, oh, they're going to water it down or they're going to lose creative control or whatever or whatever it is. But, I mean, the fact that they are acquiring a drum and bass label in the first place is like, well, they they probably weren't initially seeking out drum and bass labels, right? They're, they want to acquire them because they're doing something right. Right. So it would seem to benefit them to let them do what they do, you know, as you know, business as usual as far as, you know, promoting themselves just with a a little bit more uh, oomph behind them. Sure. And let's not forget that with SoundCloud and other, and YouTube and other, you know, major media sites uh, now being in bed with a lot of the major labels, I mean, BMG can now take that catalog and start scanning SoundCloud and YouTube and finding all of the unauthorized postings of those things and uh, order takedown notices or, you know, start collecting, you know, royal unpaid royalties or, you know, however yep. that stuff works. Yep, absolutely. So it's, it's definitely interesting. We'll see how it all plays out, but I just, I, I'm still kind of sitting here with my head spinning a drum and bass <laughs> label got bought out by BMG. Like, yeah, that's pretty <laughs> insane. <laughs> but you know, I, I'm in the camp that says, you know, hats off to Andy C. I mean, he's been working since the early nineties on that label and you know, so all these years later for for it to get the attention that it does and to have the catalog that it does, um, that's that, to me, that's that's impressive. So I hope it was a, a good payday for him. And I hope as a fan of drum and bass that it that it does help uh, continue to push you know, so drum many, and bass out into the forefront. So many people are are the biggest fans of one thing or another until they meet a certain level of success and then all of a sudden they want to flip out. Then about you're it. a sellout. Right, like you, you just can't win, right? Right, right. Well, last week while we were recording episode 30, we had a surprise visit from a mutual friend of all of us, uh, Steve Gilson, also known as Silent Gloves. Now, he's a former drum and bass DJ turned online radio jock. His weekly show, Project Friday, has built a steady following over the past couple of years and eventually developed into what is now his 24-7 online radio station, Power 85. Now, we've been trying to get him in the studio for a long time now. In fact, I've been trying to get him since probably 2013. Hmm. Uh, so once he walked in, we couldn't pass up the opportunity. So we did everything but tie him up and hold him for ransom and <laughs> force him to give us an interview. I think he actually accused us of yes, doing so. <laughs> So we changed our entire plans for the night and recorded this. What we now present to you is episode 31 of the Passionate DJ Podcast. So please join us as we talk about building an online audience, interacting with a crowd you don't see, redefining radio, and all things synthwave. We're in the studio with Silent Gloves, owner of Power 85 Radio and curator and presenter of Project Friday. Indeed. Hello. Can you explain to us, Steve, what is Power 85, what is Project Friday, and how do they relate to each other? Sure. So um, I started 
Project Friday in November of 2011. Um, I just wanted something to do on Friday nights. And I thought, you know, I'm going to try my hand at like internet broadcasting. You know, I've got kind of the knowledge and the, the music to do it. Why not? You know, it sounds like something fun. It was just something that was kind of interesting to me. And at that point in time, it was kind of taking off a little bit. Like, you know, podcasts were becoming much more prevalent. And I was like, I don't want to do podcasts. I want to do something live. I think that would be more fun. Ustream was becoming a thing. And if it, sorry to interrupt you, but you had history as a club DJ as well. Uh, right, yeah. I started DJing in 96 um, and did that through my quote-unquote retirement <laughs> in uh, around 2009, I think, is when I officially retired. So I had gone a couple of years without doing anything. I was producing music and stuff, but... Um, 2011, I was kind of like, I want to do something that's kind of like DJing, but I don't want to work at a nightclub, right? So uh, that's how I started Project Friday. And I borrowed the name from a, um, a Friday night party that me and John Chapel used to sh- throw. Yeah, he brought that up in episode seven. We talked about the, it was like a house party kind of thing. Yeah, and that's going back. I don't remember episode seven. Yeah, I'm it's on, been a while. I'm on 178 this week. Tomorrow <laughs> will be episode number 178. But um, yeah, so uh, it's it was initially a party. And the reason I liked that idea is because we started that house party that happened every week because there was nothing to do in Dayton on Friday nights. So we created something. I said, why don't we call it Project Friday? And we had this little house party. It was a blast and went all summer long. I think that was the summer of 2008. And uh, I just liked that name. It stuck with me. So when I did the show, I started doing the show, I decided to use it. So I called it Project Friday. And um, like I said, it started off as a no genre, no era, just good music. That was the slogan. Um, but then it, it, it kind of morphed over a year or so into all things 80s-inspired. Um, new music that these really, really talented, unknown artists were putting out that these guys had like 20 listeners, or 20 followers on SoundCloud, you know, maybe 100. And they were just putting out this amazing music. And they just there was no forum for people to hear this stuff. So I started going further and further that direction, and I coined the term synthwave to describe what I was playing. And I've been doing Project Friday almost every Friday night since. Um, I have a lot of listeners that are in Europe, and they, you know, it's it's kind of hard to stay up until five o'clock in the morning to listen <laughs> to a live radio show, right? Well, people were begging me to do a podcast version so they could listen to it over in Europe. I didn't really want to do that. I think it's a live experience. Project Friday is a live experience, right? Mm -hmm. But I just kept getting these email after email. Please put it up as a podcast, you know. So I was like, what can I do if I I don't want to put the show up as a podcast? Because I want it to be like 80s radio, you know. If you wanted to hear it later, you had to put a cassette tape in and record it. Right. And um, I did a lot of that. (laughs) Right, right. We all did, I'm sure. And uh, so what, what happened was I just said, you know, why don't I just do a station? I've got like, at that point, when I started it, it was March 1st of this year was when it went on, uh, Power 85 went online. Um, I d- decided just to do a 24-hour station. At that point, I had like 4,000 songs that I could, you know, put together. So I got some broadcast automation software, a piece of software called Radio DJ um, that allows you to 
um, kind of program uh, rotations based on genres and, and all kinds of stuff. I put a couple weeks of work into uh, programming all the rotations for the different times of day and getting all of the music cataloged and everything. And then I just hit the go button, and it's been 24-7 online ever since, except for one power outage. So now you've got your, your, you're covering the 24-7. Right. You can hear this synthwave music anytime that you want. You can tune into it, but you still get to do Project Friday the way right. that you feel is most pure and the way that you like to do it. Absolutely. So anybody can tune into Power 85. They can hear my music collection, basically. And it's not, it's not, I mean, it's not like a Winamp just playing. Right. You know, I've, done, I've recorded like tons of sweepers. Um, for those that don't know, a sweeper is like um, uh, talking over the intro of a track. Right. That's what mm-hmm. I was just getting ready to ask you. Do you have like little so, intros yeah, for yeah. each track? So and- when you listen to Power 85, it's it's not an amateur experience. I put a huge amount of effort into making sure it sounds just like a legitimate over-the-airwaves radio station. Um, so it's power85.com, by the way. I just want to throw that out there. And uh, you can go listen to it as soon as you're done listening to every episode of Passionate DJ Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, how did you go about building your audience? I mean, did did was the audience just there for the taking, or did how, I mean, how much did you have to work at that? Because I know that that's something that we all struggle with as DJs. That's something that I struggle with with passionate DJ and you know, learning learning how to bring people into the fold and show them what you have to offer. And and how did you go about approaching that in the early days? And is it different now? Do you do it differently now? So early on, I just posted the link on Facebook and said, hey, Project Friday's on. And folks like yourself and friends and people would tune in. And my mom and my grandma, who both still tune in fairly regularly. You know, I mean, it really was. I was doing it to like, for the first several episodes, there were points where there was nobody listening, right? I still, you know, I maintain to this day, I would, do, I would be doing this show if nobody listened to it. Mm. That I just enjoy it that much, right? It's sure. just something I really love to do. But really, in the beginning, it was just kind of friends and and uh, acquaintances and whatnot, and posting on Facebook and and on Twitter. And then um, around that time, I discovered a Facebook group uh, that's called Synthetics FM, hmm. and it's run by a guy that uh, used to go by Rick Shithouse. <laughs> And uh, he's a, uh, a rather imposing fellow from Australia. And he created a Facebook group kind of dedicated to this 80s-inspired music. And I joined that and uh, asked him if it was cool if I posted links to uh, Project Friday. So I started doing that every week, and I still do that to this day. And then, you know, it just started growing. Aside from posting on social media, I really didn't do anything to develop an audience. My, You've got a pretty solid audience. I now. do. I do. I I reach about Project Friday reaches a total of about three hundred unique people every week. Um, Power eighty five has about twelve hundred unique listeners throughout the week, and occasionally, Mixler, which is the service I use to do the live show, has discovered my show on their. Mm. So a couple times now they've posted to their Twitter that I'm live. And then all of a sudden I go from having, you know, 32 listeners in the chat room to 540. Ah, And a few of those people stick around, you know. It's not everybody. My show's not for everybody. But a few start coming back. And one thing I've noticed is that my my audience is extremely regular. I mean, there's a lot of people in there that I see every week and have for like 
you know, the whole four years I've been doing the show. So it's a really, it's a kind of almost like a family atmosphere. You know, everybody so, yeah, that's everybody. one thing I definitely noticed when I mm-hmm. tuned in for the New Year's Top 40. Right. Like everybody knew each other's names, and yeah. that was that was a really yeah. neat thing to to see how everybody interacted and and, and even responded to the tracks that you were playing and mm-hmm. all you know with Mixler, like all the hearts you know jumping yeah, all over the yeah, place. Yeah, 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 it's super cool. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I think it's really cool because when you the other thing that I've noticed is that one advantage that you have over the format that you're sort of emulating is that today we have the internet and we're all right. connected and we have all these means to interact with each other. And, you know, I tune in sporadically and whenever I jump in there, there's always, you, you do your in-between songs, you do your segues. segues and that sort of thing. And anytime I've jumped in there and, and you, you get on for your next bit and you'll be like, Oh, and hey, there's David Michael. I say hi to Stacy for me. Da, da, da. And you know, and, and you get this kind of feeling of of belonging, even if I haven't been there for two months. Right. right. When I show up, um, it's 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 really neat because then it's like, oh, I'm supposed to be here. I'm welcomed, and right. then everybody else immediately is warm towards you because you're, you know, you've been acknowledged and you're part yeah. of the family. You gave them the nod. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> nod. Yeah. I, I think that's really cool that that you can do that. I mean, what ways do you like to interact? I guess. Well, with I mean, your that's audience? huge, right? So that's that's absolutely huge for my. The one thing that I've I, my belief with regard to putting this show together and doing it live every week is that I focus on the content and the interaction. That's all I have to do. I have to generate awesome content that, you know, it's admittedly it's kind of a niche mm-hmm. show. It's not going to appeal to everybody. But for the people it does appeal to that have that nostalgia, I put a huge amount of work in making that show, making sure that those people are going to hear something new that's going to blow their mind every single week. It's not easy, right? I spend easily four to six hours getting ready for a two-hour show. On top of that, that interaction has always been a part of it, right? And that's very important because in the early days when there was one or two people in the chat, I wanted to get on that mic and say their name, right? I wanted it to be cool for them so right. that they would come back. And I've just never stopped doing that, mm-hmm. right? If we get somebody new that types in the chat room, happens almost every week, somebody pops in and says, Oh my God, I just found this. It's my first time here. This is so awesome. And I'll immediately, you know, the next segue, I'll shout them out. Hey, mm-hmm. welcome to the show. Happy to have you. Um, you know, and it people respond well to that. And it makes me feel good, right? Because they're, sure. you know, yeah. then they, they, you know, are vibing on what I'm doing. And they're, they're enough so that they made a point to comment about it. And uh, it just, it's the, the whole thing is just kind of, it's, you guys know that thing when you're having that, you're up on stage, you're performing, and the crowd is just into it just right, and everything just clicks. Um, that happens like almost every week on Project Friday. It just feels like the people that are there are just enjoying what I'm doing. And that's the best kind of gig. It, it is. That's what I was I mean, just getting ready to say. I mean, coming from the 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 stage DJ right. at you know the clubs and the raves and all that stuff, like you said, getting that lock, that relationship with with your crowd doesn't always happen. Yeah. So if you get that feeling every Friday, I'm jealous of well, you, brother. And, and <laughs> the reason is because it's it's the same people. Like I right. mean, I'd say my audience is seventy five percent the same people that were here last week. And then we get the new people and then we get the people that check in once a month or whatever. Sure. But it's a huge repeat audience, right? I know who my audience is. 
So, like, you know, sometimes the chat will be a little dead. I know exactly what track to play to liven <laughs> things up, right? Because I know my audience. Right. I think that's true of any DJ context. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you really have to know, you know, Tony, the master of opening for every major act <laughs> in the world. Right. <laughs> uh, it, it, uh, I got to pull you into this, Tony, because you haven't said anything. But, uh, uh, so one thing that Tony is able to do that I was never able to do, I, I was a guy that I was playing a main room set prime time slot every time I played, right? Probably not the best course of action, but that's just how I did it. Tony has this ability to... You know, and, and a lot you guys both do it as well. You know, to, you guys have this ability to play appropriate for the time slot and you know who you're opening for and stuff like that. I was always just at 104 percent and just dropping back here after playing. <laughs> and uh, you know that it was a lot of fun, but you know, um, but in this context, in this radio context. I tend I, I I think I'm a lot better at at recognizing what do I play now what do I play now and it's weird because I don't even get to see the people I'm playing. For. That's what I was just getting ready to say. Like it, it's really interesting that you say this because we talk a lot about reading a crowd. Reading right? a crowd, and it's one thing to read your crowd in a club environment, but for you, you don't even get to see their faces. Um, like, you're literally <laughs> reading a screen. Comparative to a top forty club, like you said, you used to work at in, in the nineties. That's where I picked mine up from as well, because you just can't start when you're playing from nine to two thirty in the morning. Right. You just can't start with the hottest track at right. that yeah, time. Yeah, so yeah. you kind of have to build your night no, to it, that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And to be fair, I was pretty good at that in a in a top forty club context. Right. right? You know, I knew. Okay, we start out with you know I'd spend the first thirty minutes playing like you know uh, house music because that's what I wanted to hear or whatever. I never played any drum and bass, but um, but then you get you know, you know what time's your hottest time of the night, and you save your best stuff. And then, you know, it, when you're doing a five-hour set, it's different. But when I when I I always looked at my drum and bass sets, playing at parties and whatever, it's like, all right, I've just got to go blow people's mind. Like I just got to, you know, and that probably. I mean, in retrospect, it wasn't the best strategy, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. I had fun while I was doing it. So. Um, well, I I can say for one, I had fun watching you do it. Well, so. good. I'm glad. <laughs> Absolutely, you were the guy. <laughs> so I I find um, you find yourself in this sort of um, music curation role as a radio yeah. DJ, um, and in a lot of ways, you kind of have the ideal setup, right? Because you have you're playing to your audience, and you know that every week, you know going in, you're playing to your people, right? Um, do you find that, do you still get to do that music curation thing 100% or do you find yourself, uh, gearing the show towards what your audience wants? In other words, do you just, do you literally get on there and just play your music collection, whatever you want to hear or how much, how much does your online quote unquote crowd influence what you play? Yeah, so that's an excellent question, and it's definitely something that I think about and pay attention to. Um, so Project Friday is always about me playing what I'm into that week. Okay. Within the confines that I've established that it's going to be something that's at least moderately 80s influenced. But, I mean, I put, like, The weekend. I uh, Can't Feel My Face. Mm. Played the crap out of that. Right, that's not synthwave. That's straight right. up pop music. Right, I love the track. I thought it was kind of had this MJ uh, inspired vibe, and I just thought it was an awesome track. 
I was going to um, say, there's a there's been a time or two where I've jumped in, and if I wait around long enough, you'll start playing old school hip hop for yeah, me. Yeah. I didn't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to give that away. No, no, absolutely. So, <laughs> so I was going to say, format, I think you've even played one of my tracks on the show. Yeah, I have, I have. So the format is like this, and my audience understands this. The first two hours of the show are the curated kind of, here's what's going on this week in Synthwave, right? Okay. It's the edutainment portion of the show. Okay. The third hour, if I, you know, I, sometimes I only do the show for two hours, but if I'm feeling, if I'm still, you know, awake and, and wanting to keep going, I, there's nothing to stop me. It's my show. I do what I want. <laughs> and so sometimes I'll just go way off in the left field at the end of the show and I'll start playing Horace Silver from, um, you know, his, one of my favorite jazz artists, or I start playing, blue, I've played bluegrass before. Yeah. Mm. Um, Irish folk music, uh, 80s rock. I mean, you name it, I've gone that direction in the third hour of the show. And that's kind of just my self indulgent time, right? Sure, yeah. sure. It's just like, I just want to play some music. And what I find is about 50% of my audience sticks around for that, depending on which direction I go. If I'm playing 80s rock, I'm going to have more people stick around than if I go into bluegrass. Right. So that's cool. So you've kind of trained your audience to expect they they know that they could tune in for that two hours and get what they want. Right. And then those that want to stick around, you could kind of scratch your own itch and play whatever you want. Right. And yeah. And and it's like the bonus I mean, hour. Yeah, it totally is. And it's um, still I'm playing what I want to play. You know, I'm not. There's a lot of guys. Well, I don't want to say a lot, but there's there are guys in the scene. A guy named Marco Merrick. Um, Awesome, awesome guy. He's also from Australia. He does a show on Sundays. Um, it's like eight hours long, and it's insane. Like he pre-records the whole thing, and he does interviews and all this stuff, and plays like all these albums, and and it's very strictly synthwave, right? I mean, everything on there fits textbook, and he managed to to fill like a six eight hour show every week. It's it's just something amazing. I can never do that. My show, you're much more apt to hear like something that is maybe on the little bit of a indie rock kind of side that has a little bit of 80s influence or, you know, something that's maybe a little more folky. Um, just if, if I'm vibing on it, I'll play it. But I always play it in context. So my format is I start the show off very like low key, right? Um, uh, one of my favorite artists to open with is a guy named Hello Meteor. His music is just mind-blowing, but it's the kind of stuff you just, you know, at 4 o'clock in the morning, you just chill to. Um, it's very low-key. Uh, and then I build up the first hour, right? So by the end of the first hour, I want to be playing stuff that's up-tempo. Um, and then I do the kick-ass tune of the week right at the top of the hour. And then the second half of the show is more dancey stuff, you know, getting up-tempo into the, you know, almost like the house music kind of tempo range. So you you're still considering... Things like the level of energy and that sort of thing, oh, even though you're not in it, you are in a live context, but you're not in a venue or right. or something like that. No, no, I mean they. I've I've asked my audience on several occasions, "Do you like the format?" And the overwhelming response is yes. Everybody knows exactly how the show works. There's no question. So when I'm looking, when I find a song, here's here's how I kind of program the show. I find a song and I figure out what time that track fits into. Because I know what the kind of the ramp up of the show looks like, like one what time specifically, or like the time block, like this time in the block. Second well, hour. I mean, so I arrange my show based on almost exclusively. Well, there's more to it than this. It's not quite this simple, but really, I arrange, I program the show based on energy. 
Okay. So, but then I'll put two vocal tracks back to back, right? Or I'll put a you know a couple instrumentals, and I'll do you know breaks, and it's programmed like a radio show would be programmed. So there's never going to be any herky jerkiness to the show. Right. Um, That's so cool because the the modern radio format doesn't give a shit about that. Well, they they put <laughs> they put drops in between every song, and they use that as a mask to hide the fact mm-hmm. that they're not actually programming anything. They're not programming the station. I mean, most of these stations get their playlists Made over for the them. internet. Yeah. And, you know, I hate to say that, but it's true. I mean, there's nobody in the studio operating a radio station anymore. Um, there's somebody at, at iHeartRadio that's, you know, curating it and hitting a button and it ships down to that radio station and whatever. Um, so that's very important to me, the, the aspect of programming the show in a way that makes sense to the audience and is coherent and has a good flow to it. You know, So even though I'm not mixing, I'm still doing all of that stuff that you know we do when we do a live set. You know, I'm making sure it's coherent. I really like that because you know we we all really owe this whole DJing thing to that radio DJ format. That's yeah, really absolutely. where it comes from. Yeah. And very few of us on the, on this side. When I say this side, I mean on the, the doing the club circuit or uh, playing bars or or whatever that the shows. Um, don't always acknowledge or even know that, especially if they're younger. Yeah, um, they don't get to experience. They don't understand. They, 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 their view of a radio DJ is is clear channel right. or whatever. You know what I mean? It's it's somebody to to jump in, say, "Hey, welcome to blah 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 radio." Da, 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 da. Here's the weather. Here's your next track. Right. They're not used to somebody who gives a crap about stuff like this. Would be this is more energetic, it would fit in the third segment right. or whatever. Well, you got to remember, I mean, as recently as, you know, the 80s and even into the early 90s, um, there was a jock in the studio that was manually playing right. music. Yeah, that's what I was tables. just getting ready to say. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, these guys were, you tuned into somebody's show for the exact same reason people tune into my show. Now, am I the best radio jock in the world? Absolutely yes. not. I'm not even in the top ten. <laughs> I have a little bit of a good voice, but I, as far as, like, I go back and I I don't know if you guys know this term, but in the radio world there's something called an air check. So typically if you're on the air as a radio DJ, you have what's called a scoped air check with your program director once a week. And basically, it's a recording of your show where they just cut out all the music and they just listen to every break that you did, every weather reading, and they critique it. Okay. And that's called an air check. And if you get out on YouTube and you type in 1980s air checks, you can find hundreds of them. (laughs) And I go back and I listen to some of those and I think, man, I have so much room to improve. (laughs) <laughs> because these guys just blow my mind. I mean, they had so much. Now, of course, they were probably all doing blow, but <laughs> <laughs> they have so much energy. Well, now you know what sure. you're doing wrong, Steve. Right. Well, I'm not going down that route. Uh, maybe. I don't know. No. <laughs> but um, uh, I apologize if that was inappropriate no, for no, the podcast. No, not but But um, no, I mean, it's amazing to see these guys just this, you know, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or drive home or whatever they were doing. Just being so excited about their just being on the radio, you know, mm-hmm. and that's something I try to duplicate. But I'm not, 
I'm not there yet. Yeah, the radio personality back then was great. Oh, I know, man. It it was. They were in your face. Yeah. Yeah. And and, well, I don't want to say in your face, but you could, you know, if you were scrolling through the dial in the 80s, um, you could hit, you knew when you hit a station, you know, it was. Rock and Ron Sedaly on whatever, you know. Right. Uh, Ron Sedaly is one of my favorites, by the way. But um, he does uh, a show called All Requests Saturday Night still. But in any case, I mean, they, they had these DJs with personality, and you would hit a station, and you'd be like, oh, this is interesting, right? Like within like a few seconds, right? And um, that just doesn't exist today. I mean, there, it does a little bit like in the major markets, uh, Z100, um, is a good example where they have still live jocks on the air, but you know it's just a rare thing. I don't listen to radio much anymore, but every time I do turn the radio on, I hear Ryan Seacrest or somebody syndicated, right? Not somebody local, like a good local personality. It's always some Hollywood celebrity that that's all people want to listen to. And to care his to earlier to. point, yeah, it's a, it's a curated playlist from the internet, you know, yeah. and and all of that, you know comes from one central location. Whereas before, like to your point, back in the 80s, I can remember those personalities on there. And while they were all still playing what was popular at the time, there was a lot more thought into the way it was presented. Right. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And what was popular at the time was just better than what's popular. (laughs) (laughs) When you're talking about pop music, I absolutely agree. I think that's that's probably unfair because I actually am starting to enjoy some of the new stuff. You know, like Mm. the weekend I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, You know, I liked some of Taylor Swift's recent stuff. You know, I'm not scared to admit it. If it's good. I'm not either. I am one of Taylor. Hey, Taylor. Uh. (laughs) I actually, I actually get really excited when I hear a, a good pop song because they're so few and far between now. Exactly. And that almost every time if I hear one, I'm like, this is actually good music. Holy crap. It made it on the radio. Right. I, I immediately get on Facebook or Twitter or something and say something about it because it's like people, the people need to realize that this is like, you can actually make good music and have it hit the radio. It just, you know, their new album. I was just going to talk about them. <laughs> oh, You've sorry. hit me to them, and man, they're amazing. Steal, uh, I'm stealing your thunder. No, Saint not Lucia. at all. Talk. They got. They have, um, no, I shouldn't say they. It's. It, there's a little bit of confusion about St. Lucia. St. Lucia is actually one guy. I believe his name's pronounced Jean-Philippe Grobler. He's from South Africa, so I could totally be butchering, butchering that. But then there are musicians around him that mm-hmm. help contribute to his singing. Kind of like a Nine Inch Nails. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, Atticus Ross being right. a big contributor there. Right. Uh, so it's kind of like that same kind of thing. St. Lucia is Jean-Philippe, Philippe, whatever, Grobler. And, um, but just mind-blowing. And he was on um, uh, The Tonight Show just last week promoting the album. It nice. was awesome. Yeah, I've been seeing it all over my Facebook wall. Yeah. Them promoting the iTunes release. Yeah, yeah, I pre-ordered the assigned copy. Really? Uh, yeah, I'm That's super awesome. excited about it. on vinyl, no less. Nice. It seems like an easy go-to, but I love. Uptown Funk. Oh, yeah. I think that's track. an awesome song. <laughs> right? I love those big, like, uh, elephone synthy like, yeah, leads absolutely. and stuff in it. It's oh, very, yeah. like, like I grew up on Parliament and The Time right. and stuff like that. I was so just getting ready the, to say the keys in it remind me of The Time and mm-hmm. Prince. And, yeah, you don't yeah. ever say a bad word about The Time. <laughs> <laughs> More stage <laughs> wrong. <laughs> so, Steve, what, is, what would you say, what's your biggest struggle with running an online show like that what do you hate about it is there anything occasionally 
and I say this, it's pretty, it's pretty seldom, but occasionally it can feel like work. Hmm. You know, I have weeks where just occasionally, huh? Yeah. I mean, most of the time I really love doing it. I mean, it sounds like a lot of work. It is. And, but some weeks, you know, you get on SoundCloud and it's like, you know, I'll take, I have weeks where I can fill two hours with all brand new, amazing music. And then I have other weeks where I hop on, you know, I have my routine where I go through to find music. I won't, I'm not going to put all my secrets out, but, you know, SoundCloud is one of the places that I, that I look and I'll listen to 200 songs on SoundCloud and just not find anything. You know, mm-hmm. there's just nothing, nobody's active that week. And those are the weeks where I struggle. I mean, mm-hmm. because then I'm like, okay, what, I've got to kind of put, put something together that is still different from last week, but, you know, um, and sometimes I pull out like a retro show or a throwback mm. show. Sure. Sometimes I will go more towards the indie domain or, you know, just whatever. I try to make it work, but sometimes that can really throw a wrench in the gears in terms of me putting on a good show, you know. Yeah. And then some, some days, you know, I just have a bad day at work or whatever. Um, that's pretty seldom. I love my job, but... Occasionally it happens. I'm a little stressed out, and I just don't feel like doing it, so I take the week off. I did that last week. It's I try to do the show every week, and I try to push myself to do it. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, I take a week off every once in a while. So is is there anything that you miss from from going from the sort of club circuit and 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 I keep trying not to say live because it's still live, but you know what I mean in right. a live context. You're in front of your audience. Is there anything you miss from that? Um, is there anything that, I guess, what does and doesn't translate? Uh, well, in terms of missing it, nope. <laughs> um, I An really easy don't. answer. Uh, yeah, I really don't. Um, I, that was a, a, a an awesome part of my life, um, and I loved it while I was doing it. But I just totally burned out on it. And and you found your thing, seems like. Now. Yeah, and this is a different thing. Like you said before, some stuff really does translate, like the programming and the aspect of, you know, kind of creating a journey through the, the show. That's definitely something that translates. Um, but on the, on the nice end, I can do the show in my boxers, and relatively often right. I do do that. I mean, I'm sitting there, I'm comfortable... I'm drinking a beer. I don't have to worry about driving. You know, I'm at home. I can once the show's over, I go in and watch TV for a little while and go to bed. I don't. I don't have to take a shower and get the rave goo off. <laughs> right. You know, don't I have mean, to blow your nose, get all the boogers uh, out. Yeah. Oh god, the rave boogers. The rave boogers. Um, <laughs> so that's the second time in like four weeks that we that brought, we brought, up brought rave that boogers. up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but you know, I mean, it's I'm not 24 anymore, so that that kind of stuff. And I have a you know a pretty well established career a job that I love. So this is just, I mean, it's something I do as a hobby that allows me to still have that kind of performance aspect, but without any of the hassles that go with it, I guess. That's an interesting uh, take on all of that because, you know, I mean, I've been DJing since the late 90s as well, and there have been periods of even years, and especially from like 04, 05 to like 08, 09, like there was just that big you know, chunk of dead space right. in this entire area where it didn't matter who you were, you were only playing to 25 people, you know? Right. It's yeah. just, and so a lot of it started to feel 
like work. I was getting burnt out on it. And it, so there was just a period of time where I was just like, eh. but I didn't have any other outlet for, you know, presenting myself artistically. So, right. it, you know, I, I, I ended up coming back to it and getting more into it, especially after, you know, for our area, dubstep started really hitting the area about Oh nine and 10, and which you'll, is, you'll notice that coincides very closely to when I retired. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you know, that started to bring a lot of the younger kids in and it started yeah. to, you know, sw- you know, swell the, the, uh, the attendance back up. So then it started to become more fulfilling again. And okay, now I'm DJing again and kids are digging what I'm doing and all that. And right. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I feel like it, what, what you're saying there, like, if I had some other alternative right. source of mm-hmm. putting myself out there as an artist to, you know, uh, for, for people to, you know, dig it or don't, but putting it out there, then I, I, I very may well have been in your position, but. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's interesting because the whole, you know, the whole dubstep phenomenon that happened and, and all that kind of stuff wasn't appealing to me. And, but it's okay that it appeals to other people. Like, sure. I you know, I don't take any issue with it. Um, but it just, it came so suddenly and it was like, I had kind of discovered that my, my true like passion and roots in music were eighties. Right. I mean, when I was producing drum and bass, it sounded like eighties music. That's why John B signed me to do a remix because he liked this 80, you know, this, right. this 80 sound. And, but when I did that John B remix, I, when I started producing drum and bass, my goal was to get a release on beta recordings. I got a release on beta recordings. I met the goal. I retired. And then I kind of became more honest with myself and said, you know what? I'm not like these drum and bass guys that have all of these, you know, hip hop influences and stuff. I mean, I grew up on 80s music. That's what I love. That's what I need to be doing. So I just kind of met my goals with drum and bass I had performed, you know, at one point to like 2,200 people. I mean, you know, there are bigger crowds today, but sure, that's, sure. A, that's a huge crowd to perform. Absolutely. In front of. Mm-hmm. And it was a rockin' show, and that, that was Afterlife in Columbus, by the way, if you remember that show back in 2005, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, but anyway, I had done everything I wanted to do, and I just, I'd done that um, uh, Robot Lover remix for John B., and it, it had had kind of this 80s, vibe to it because I kind of started like I think I had discovered like Tesla boy by then and I'd kind of started leaning a little more towards just being out there with this 80s sound and I did that and then I was like man I'm just gonna go full bore on this and see where it leads and I can tell you I've had way more success as silent gloves than I ever did as frenzy huh I still have that track. That track's on Spotify. I have it on my drum and bass playlist. Oh, awesome. So I still get to hear that. That's cool, man. <laughs> it's it's funny because you can kind of hear that that transition. Proto, proto, yeah, yeah, because the, you've got those kind of high bell synths mm-hmm. that just have that, that kind of touch the, of 80s to it. I had, that was the track where I introduced what I call my uh, Silent Gloves clap verb, mm. which is a gated clap with a big, huge reverb tail on it. And I've gone through several variations of it, but um, that was the first track that I did that on, and I just loved it. And it's been on almost every track I've produced since as, like, a nice little fill where you just get this clap, you know, and it's it's got this huge tail on it. Um, but I digress. <laughs> I got one more question for you, Steve. Shoot. How can I... <clears throat> let me try this again. 
Steve, how can I improve my radio voice? <laughs> uh, work in nightclubs and have to run contests for years. Because, I mean, I when I was, I mean, Tony probably remembers. Before I started so doing that. So this is your MC voice. Is that what, is that yeah, what you're saying? Yeah. Um, before I started doing that, I was just a snotty, nerdy, skinny, nasally little kid, right? And you, when you're in a nightclub... And you immediately hear your voice on a huge sound system, uh, right as you're saying it, you become acutely aware of every very self conscious, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, being thrown into that environment and running contests and doing stuff like that, that it just it just makes you work on it like through force. It's like baptism by fire. And, you know, so that's I mean, that's what did it for me is those years and then um, you know, I've gotten better with my voice since I started doing Project Friday. You know, I hear myself in my headphones every week for two hours. And, you know, little by little, I'm improving. I'm not there yet. I mean, yeah, for me, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm fun fact about trip here is that years ago, I used to be a strip club DJ. So I had to have that cliche all righty guys <laughs> you're coming up to the stages star yeah. <laughs> like, make sure you get your two for ones you're the, you know <laughs> like, you know so i'm way out of practice that was years and years and years ago so i was even telling david i said as as i've been doing all of the editing and putting all of this stuff together the more i hear my voice the more i'm like oh god <laughs> it's it, one thing one thing that's easy like this format is challenging for me i mean this is easy because i'm talking about stuff i know right sure but like um my friend andy that does a show on power 85 called beyond synth he can just talk by himself for like 15 minutes straight and it's just amazing to me because it just it's so natural for him, right? I can fill um, a thirty second segue pretty effectively, right? And that's and for for a, a music jock, you know, music radio type format, that's fine. And I can do interviews and stuff. I'm not as good as interviews as I'd like to be, but you know, somebody like Andy that can just riff for fifteen twenty minutes and have it be entertaining and funny is is really something to aspire to. Amen so. to that. Yeah. I'm trying really hard to get better at that. That is tough. Yeah. I found, <clears throat> excuse me, I found uh, out really how difficult that was when I got Periscope. Have you guys heard of Periscope, this uh, app? Yeah. So it's like no. basically you're just like, you know, showing whatever's in front of your face and it's like live streaming. And, I, you know, I was trying to, to use Periscope and every time I would turn it on, it just immediately, like even if nobody's watching, I'm just self-conscious. Yeah. And I'm like, what if I... What if I like have something on my face, or what if I sound <laughs> stupid, or what if I don't know what to talk about? You know, and it, yeah, that's a that's definitely a skill all in its own to just be able. This makes it easier, you know, being able yeah, to yeah. talk to you guys and go back and forth. And yeah, that's absolutely. Kinda, you know, well, you know, like something that happens to me a lot, and I am still working. This is an absolute skill that blows my mind for guys that were actual jocks in radio when it counted. Is the skill of hitting the post. So when you've got a track, now I, I do have a little bit of an excuse. I'll get into that later. But when you have a track that has an intro, you know, back in the day they used to write the amount of time that the intro, what time the intro was over, and it had a little, the cart machine had a little counter on it, and you'd know the vocals on this track are going to start at second number 26, right, or whatever it was. That's called the post. And hitting the post 
is like this amazing skill that I have not <laughs> mastered yet where a jock can get on there and be like, you know, hey, what's up? It's Silent Gloves, and you are listening to Project Friday on Power 85, blah, 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 and the sentence ends exactly at As that the vocal second. Start. And that hitting that, that the art of hitting the post is something that just completely fascinates me because these guys just have it in their brain. They're watching that, and they know exactly how long what they're going to say is going to get out. And I either run out of things to say like 10 seconds before the post, or I'm stepping on the post. You know, I, I'm going over it. What's funny is, you remember Brian Distout, Brian Savage on Z93? He's the guy that taught me how to DJ in the, in the early 90s. He's still, to this day, you know, one of my closest friends. And we were just talking about that last night. We, we play Xbox together at late night. And um, we were talking about the podcast and, and the art of hitting a post and knowing the exact amount of seconds and talking and blah, 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 blah on Z93 and then the lyrics or the bass line or something right. yep. of that song yep. kicks in. They know it's, it's an art in itself. And well, you know, as a kid... I hated that <laughs> because, you know, you know, as a, as a, as a younger kid and even going into the teens, you know, the only way we had to get music for free was to hit, that record hit the record button. button on a tape deck. So getting a song without the damn radio jock. Oh, I was like a unicorn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So as a kid, but you know, later on, then it absolutely, you know, you, you, you learn to have appreciated that. That is something that is, it's just something that requires a huge amount of practice. And I get it right maybe 25% of the time. I can hit a post and it feels so, it's like the perfect golf swing or the perfect mix. You know, you just right. feel it. You know, you know when you hit the post right. Is it a problem of like, do you need to really know the, the music or the song? Or that is was it- my, I alluded to in having an excuse later. I'm playing a lot of new music every week, mm. but I set my ramps. So part of my prep is I go through and I have, like, in my software that I use, I can hit play and set the cue point, and then you hit play, and there's a little button for the ramp. So right when the vocals come in, you hit that little button, and then when you play back the song in the player, it counts down the ramp. So I've got a big right in my face, like, uh, you know, nine, eight, seven, (laughs) six, five, when I'm doing it. And it's still hard to do. It's right. still hard to do. As even with all of the amazing technology that we have now, you know, going into like trying to do like a studio mix, you know, yeah. you know, putting together, you know, promo mixes or whatever, I, I almost never do it. And and even when I do try to do it, that red light, like it's not even a timer, right? right. Like you're <laughs> just hitting record in Serato or, 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 <laughs> or SoundForge or whatever. As soon as I see that red light, it's, Oh, <laughs> you know, it's like just a total freeze up. Like, oh, look, going back to what you were saying earlier, it's like this freezing. Like, oh, but what if I? What if I? What if I? Right. Crap. You know? no, <laughs> it's too late. Is, it's already too late. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that's funny. You put this mic in front of me. I had nerves for a minute. You know, and I'm right. somebody who sits in front of a microphone for oh yeah. Two you hours. hear how much I've said this whole show. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have to admit. I mean, because I've never done this. So yeah, every every it's show different it, different environment, yeah. different setting. Um, people around. I'm not used to people mm-hmm. being around when I'm right. doing it. Right. So you know, talking on this mic here is a little challenging. But you know, I got over it in like 15 minutes. But what you know, right? It happens. You know, every week that we've done this since we've been recording. So we we record in a place called Dayton Studios, which we'll we'll bring up in a future episode. But. Um, you know, every time we come in here to record, you know, it's none of us are home anymore. We're, co- we're going to a place. 
we're setting up a whole thing. We've got to test the mics. You got to go through this whole rigmarole, and then it's like, okay, create content. Let's do show, <laughs> right? And so, yeah, it does. It, it takes you all, but every every time, without fail, you know, the the first five or ten minutes, I just feel like, man, I'm just, what do I got to do to, you know, <laughs> going back, it always sounds fine. That's probably trips magic, yeah, with editing, but um, you know, he puts auto tune on it, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> but ten minutes in, we always we're into the swing of things, and I think. I think having a pre-show chat really helps with yeah, that too. Get that, get that flow going a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Well, Steve, this was awesome, man. Thanks yeah. for showing up today. Yeah, really thanks. appreciate it. Was fun. It. I, I totally did not expect to come in and crash a podcast. Uh, <laughs> we would love to have you back to crash at any time. Absolutely, uh, that's very much appreciated. And I live about five minutes away, so I can probably make that happen. Awesome. Very cool. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. That was episode thirty-one. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, SoundCloud, Instagram. Anywhere you got it, I'm messing around with Snapchat now. Add me. We'll, uh, we send lots of behind-the-scenes stuff while we're here in the studio. Don't forget to submit voicemails. We love taking voicemails. You can leave us a message using your smartphone, your tablet, your uh, webcam, whatever you got. Just go to passionatedj.com forward slash ask, and we would love to hear from you. We'll see you next time. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Passionate DJ Podcast at www.passionatedj.com. Check out the fan page at facebook.com slash passionatedj or on Twitter at DJ with Passion. And always remember to keep on spinning. Passionate DJ. First of all, I have a catchphrase. Ah, what's happening? PassionateDJ.com. That night, I don't remember what number it was, but you played a track by David Hasselhoff. And I was like... Kung Fury. That was, yeah, so I was I like, got, are we serious right got, now? It's a thing? Like David Hasselhoff tell, is really a musician? Like I, He's huge in Germany and yeah. has been for decades. But I got to tell a little bit of story about that. <laughs> so one of the first artists I came across that was really just blowing my mind in this genre was a guy that went by the name Mitch Murder. And... Um, he was very early in my discovery of the genre, and he was, I would argue, probably uh, him and Tesla Boy were the two artists that weren't just 80s influenced, but they were just doing 80s music, right? I mean, just straight up 80s music. And I discovered his album, uh, Current Events, still probably one of my favorite albums. And so I became friends with him. He lives in Sweden, in Stockholm, and and uh, he's a really cool guy. Um, used to be a taxi driver. Very interesting guy. And um, But anyway, fast forward, and a guy named David Sandberg discovered Mitch Murder, a lot of the, kind of the same way I did. And he was so inspired that he decided, I need to make a movie that's based around this music. And he was a, he was a filmmaker. He did music videos and like commercials and stuff. Quit his job, self-funded, created a minute and a half trailer for a movie called Kung Fury. And <clears throat> that ended up getting crowdfunded on Kickstarter to the tune of 700 some odd thousand dollars. It became a, about a 30 minute long film that's free on YouTube. But right at the end of production, they had sent, he had just had this idea, I'm going to send David Hasselhoff an email. 
and see if like he wants do. to be <laughs> right. if he, see if he wants to be involved. So he sent him the trailer for the movie, and the story is that from his agent that he heard was that he watched about fifteen to twenty seconds of the trailer and said, "I'm in." <laughs> so they That's took a Mitch, They took a Mitch Murder song. They sent it over to him and his producer. David Hasselhoff recorded vocals over it, and it became the theme song for the movie Kung Fury. Get and that out. has launched, and that was the song I played. The song's called True Survivor, and the music video for it is so Amazing, awesome. yeah. Because so. after I heard it on your podcast, the next day I went to work and pulled it up. Like, right. there's no way that's a real thing. <laughs> that's not, like, he must have said something. Like, and it's tens <laughs> of millions of views. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was huge. It was huge this year.